0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Welcome. I am Michaela Novak, Senior Fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. The podcast episode today focuses upon a new book entitled Fragile Neighbourhoods, repairing American society one zip code at a time. Over recent years, concerns have been increasingly canvassed about problems plaguing American neighbourhoods, rising crime, school violence, family disintegration, addiction, alienation and despair. The implications of such problems are all too significant given the importance that neighbourhoods have for our daily functioning and long-term potential. This new book offers a bold new vision for addressing social decline in America, as the subtitle goes, one zip code at a time. By revitalising our local institutions and the social ties that knit them together, we can all turn our neighbourhoods into places where people and families can thrive. This book is authored by Seth Kaplan, and it is my privilege to speak to Dr. Kaplan for this Hayek Program podcast episode. Seth Kaplan is a leading expert on fragile states. He is a professorial lecturer in the Paul H. Nitz School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University, senior advisor for the Institute for Integrated Transitions, and a consultant to multilateral organizations such as the World Bank, US State Department, US Agency for International Development, and the OECD, as well as developing country governments and NGOs. Kaplan was a visiting fellow of the Makeda Centre with the center's Programme on Pluralism and Civil Exchange. Seth, it's a really great pleasure to have you as a guest for this episode of the Hayek Programme podcast. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Michaela.
1: Happy to be with you today. Thank you very much. So I have obviously provided a brief overview of some of your career achievements. I'm just wondering if you could please provide our listeners with some additional background as to your own experiences, how they might have motivated you to write your book. So did your firsthand experiences of life in regions of the world with non-robust states, even fragile states, fragile governments influence your work? And if so,
2: how? Uh, Let me give you a couple of uh, answers to that. So first, I've spent much of the last 20 years working, living and working on lots of different fragile states. I've been in about 75 countries, worked in about 35 countries, lived in Nigeria, and so on and so forth. And uh, I think the thing that strikes you, I mean, when people talk about fragility, first, what is fragility when we talk about fragile states? Very prone to violence, political instability, typically underdeveloped. If they have oil, the oil isn't being, the the revenue or the wealth is not being widely shared. So a lot of poverty. And the thing that a lot of people look at this as a technical problem, for me, after years of, I mean, wandering at first, and then reading, reading, studying, writing books, I wrote the first book on fragile states, fixing fragile states, and then years of working in in the field, peacekeeping, peacemaking. I think the thing that I find the The best way to understand the problem of these countries is the role of relationships, the role of social dynamics, the role of society. I I find that relationships are the central to the health of any society. And when we think of how politics or how economics, yes, policy matters. Yes, leadership matters. I don't want to discount those at all. But we often forget that before all that, what you might call pre-political, is the nature of society, the nature of relationships. Relationships produce institutions. How well-functioning institutions are. We always say in my field, institutions matter, but we never take a step before that and understand the social context and relationships that affect the nature of institutions. And that's really what's been at the heart of my work. So when people asked me, 2015, 2016, everybody knew me in Washington as the fragile states person because whatever I did, I mean, I was like the fragile states person. I did other things, conflict prevention, political transitions, but that was sort of my headline or or my elevator pitch. And so when I, within about a year, a year and a half, got asked six, seven, eight, I can't even remember, times partly serious, partly jokingly, is America becoming a fragile state? Clearly, they were worried about the elections and what was happening with American politics. Their immediate reaction was, something's going really bad here. Are we becoming very fragile? And I, coming back from Sri Lanka, coming back from Nigeria or the Middle East, I didn't take that question at face value, but it led me to take a journey an exploration, like for me, everything is a journey. You want to take a, I took a journey into the country, physically visiting, interviewing, talking, reading, and reading, and reading, and again, always with the question or the lens. Relationships are the upstream. Relationships affect everything else, and if something is wrong that wasn't wrong before, what has changed in the nature of our relationships? and very foundational institutions that have led to whatever people worry about in the politics or other issues in the country. That's the start of my journey.
1: So I do think that the, uh, the emphasis on relationality and social dynamism is, uh, seem, appears to be quite central to your book. And as we will uh, sort of uncover, I hope, we'll learn that uh, sort of the task of reviving American neighborhoods is as much a journey, as uh, you've alluded to. So in the interest of establishing some shared meanings about a core concept that thematically informs your work, I'd just like to ask the following question. What is a neighbourhood? So is a neighbourhood merely a geographic space of happenstance and of coexistence between individuals? Or are there additional attributes that constitute the core of a proper understanding of neighborhood. If something other than geography sets a neighborhood apart from other collective classifiers, what would you
2: have in mind? Okay, so let me first bridge from what I just said, and then let me answer that. So first, when I zeroed in on relationships, when you analyze a country and you focus on the nature of relationships, you're looking for, not every relationship matters, And when I work on fragile states, local communities often are very cohesive. They work very well. The challenge is is there's nothing above them. There's no bridging or overarching national institutions that manage conflict, manage the distribution of resources, and then you get basically political instability, violence, fighting over those things. When I come to America, we have great national institutions. They may not work perfectly, but they are stable. They've worked for a very long time in the design of the country that from the Constitution from Madison onward. It's even designed to have these counterbalancing forces to uh, limit any institution from causing problem to the system of governance that we have in a country if a bad person is in power or if one institution doesn't quite work the way you want it to work. So it's all designed in a very, in a very unique And I would say um, very, very good fashion, especially for a country of our scale. So when I look for the problem of relationships and I ask myself what had changed, I think what has changed most of all is not something national, but something in our interpersonal lives. And that is where I went to the neighborhood. Something about the, I mean, we were famous from the Tocqueville onward. You can look at Robert Putnam's work about how. How abundant were local institutions? And I include the strength of the family. I include the strength of interfamily dynamics. I include the, the strength of all those local associations, such that for the most part, people were embedded in, grew up in, lived their lives in. A lot of these, many of them might have been unregistered informal, but lots of associational life, even the term institutions, as I think our listeners will know, it doesn't mean a nonprofit that's registered. It could mean just the norms of behavior. So when I drew that conclusion and I started looking around, I think one of the things we find so interesting about, it's true everywhere, but it's so stark in the United States. You are a relative newcomer to America. If you were to wander around American cities, or around this huge country of 330 million people, I think one thing that stands out with your foreign eyes, and I have foreign eyes after all my travel, is how different different specific places are in terms of how well they're doing, how people might be experiencing life in this country. Just as an example, the the difference in the average lifespan between different neighborhoods in America is over 40 years. So just imagine you're living in two different neighborhoods. They may be a few miles apart, and one one has people living 40 years or 30 years or even 20 years longer than the others. That's telling you a lot, and there's lots of other data like that. So, So therefore, neighborhoods matter. And what has really changed for me is not the headline issues about polarization and mistrust, That's downstream from what is happening locally. We're not experiencing life well in many places, and we're not experiencing, we're not learning to trust each other. We're not having those types of local interactions and dynamics we used to have. So your question is, what is a neighborhood? So a neighborhood, historically, all human beings lived in basically something like neighborhoods because we didn't have cars, they sh- people shopped locally. If there's schools, people went to school locally. People worshiped locally. You might have done some travel, but everything was very place-based with lots of institutions. There were neighborhoods or like neighborhoods. A-, a neighborhood is a place that has an identity, a place that has ideally boundaries, a place that has a center or some something that, that something. It may not always be in the center, but a center. A place, a neighborhood has lots of institutions. It could be religious, could be businesses, local businesses. It could be civic associations. A lot of those institutions might be informal. I think my neighborhood, my neighborhood has houses of worship. My neighborhood has a series of restaurants, has shopping. It has lots of local associations, foundations, just for people in the neighborhood for the most part. I'm on the board of a special needs School in which probably half or two thirds of the kids might come from this neighborhood. a neighborhood often has community schools, so it has it has this sense of togetherness and has lots of these institutions that overlap and bring people together. What has changed so much because of the car and because of nationalization and because of how our country has evolved is that many Americans do not live in neighborhoods anymore. For for most many people, their life is placeless. They may have lots of beautiful houses. They may have nice green areas. They have no place to meet their neighbors. There's nothing that brings them together. There's no beginning, end. There's no center. There's nothing local. You drive to the church, whatever. You drive to school. You drive to shop. You do things online. So you don't actually know your neighbors and except for you and a series of networks you've built up in your life, you have that is your social life, your immediate family, and your networks. And we could talk all about that. Sorry for the long answer there.
1: No, no, no. I I think that um, your your response is uh, extremely interesting, including you know as you uh, alluded to from in my own case, you know having uh, sort of recently sort of lived in 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 the US. I tend to sort of uh, agree with. Um, what you suggest in terms of uh, observations about the sheer diversity of sort of neighbourhood life in the US. I mean, there are sort of gradations of diversity which are are clearly more evident in my home country, though um, though you did mention one variable, uh, social media, which might be sort of a ready explanation for why neighbourhoods have sort of drawn in their sort of horns and sort of don't interact at a sort of face-to-face level. Is social media an important variable here driving the phenomena that you're identifying in your book?
2: I think the key thing is technology. I think social media, what's social media roughly since 2012, 2013, 14? I think we're seeing a broad change, partly because of tech. It's technology driven. I don't think it had to take us to where we are completely. It certainly would have brought us in this direction and that we have made choices from urban planning to the nature of government, to the nature of, of, of the nonprofit world, even to the nature of houses of worship. The houses of worship, they have a much different concept of what it means to be a religious community or they don't even have it. It's like religion without community almost today. So there's so many things you could look at, but at, at the heart of the matter is how technology has changed society, Changed people's interaction with each other, changed our daily habits and routines. And social media. I think a lot of people look at social media as the problem, but I think the data says that. I mean, if you read Bob Putnam's work, 1964 was the peak, and then we've been on a downward path ever since. Social media is 2012, so I think the exact year is hard to put your. I mean, it's that's broader trends. That are affecting people in different places at different times, but broadly we had a certain trajectory that shifted as people moved out, as everything became more nationalized, and so on and so forth. And I think the social media is the is the latest wave of that. And I think that we've had a series of waves, and we have to think of social media as an extension of that. And not the main driver. It just accelerates what has been happening previously.
1: Yeah, I think that intuition sounds right to me. So, what is actually striking about your book, uh, Seth, if I may, uh, is the degree of effort and care Uh, you obviously place in situating your study within a broader context of contemporary research findings. So, one example that springs to mind when reading your book is your references to the work of Deaton and Case. Uh, whose book Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism uh, has definitely garnered considerable attention in both academic and policy circles. So how do you see your book fitting in with the growth in the the recent interest in the likes of social epidemiology and, and cultural inquiry into the American condition? Now, I'll add to that by mentioning that you've already mentioned the name Tocqueville. Uh, in passing. So I am actually wondering if you consider your work to be couched in a longer ranging tradition of concern beyond the sort of the recent fashion of social epidemiology about community functioning. So even of a Burkean or Tocquevillian sense, where's your book placed in all of this?
2: So I think there's two questions there. So let me do the second and then the first. So I, I definitely see the world with, I would say, Burkean eyes. I'm a very much an institutionalist. I'm not sure Burke would have called himself an institutionalist. I'm not sure the term exists at that existed at that point in time. And if you work in the types of countries I work in, and then you, of course, I read widely, as you've noted. Uh, I can. It's hard for me not to believe that institutions matter. And then for me, the real question is: what are the types of institutions that are most likely to Work in a place, because a lot of things we bring into countries, very abstract, very outside in, they don't plant roots, and they don't they don't work because they're not they're not coming so so a Burkean lens certainly gives you a certain understanding about how institutions evolve, how institutions work, how institutions contribute to a broader society. And I, I certainly am a fan of the Tocqueville, I'm a fan of Nisbet, and we could go on and on with these types of people. And, and, and so they're all, they're all there someplace in the book. Uh, yet, yet again, my book is for a large audience, so I am intentional in just referencing them. And, but if you even look at the, the framing of the problem about what matters at the neighborhood level, for the most part, I'm talking about institutions, a level down, I'm talking about the physical or structural factors that shape institutions. And and that comes right out of actually my work. Structural factors shape institutions, shape basically how people behave. The people can shape the other two, but it's this type of sort of like a triangle. So that would be one that would be what one, one thing you asked about. The second thing I think you asked about is how do how does my work relate to deaths of the spirit and other thinking? I, I think there's from before. That book, there's there has been for several decades an understanding that social context matters for health. I mean, studies on individual being will tell you over and over again that relationships are extremely important. I mean, any book that's comprehensive about health, not just food, not just exercise, not just the physical, will talk about it. And there certainly is a, a long-standing field that talks about how Community and place can matter in terms of the health outcomes. I think with that particular Deaths of despair book and that and that literature, it really drew attention to the fact that the health I mean if you look back if I, I don't actually have this in my book, but if you look back on the health, the average lifespan, a very crude number, but a useful number, the average lifespan of an a, American versus that of other developed countries, and you look back from the basically the late 70s, early 80s. Again, I talked about 64 as being a pivot, and then we have a, a transition. By, the, by roughly the late 70s, early 80s, the US was a bit behind. The US demographics are not, um, uh, for various reasons, lead it to have worse health outcomes than other developed countries, but we were pretty close Around 1980. And then gradually over four decades, we have a divergence. I mean, COVID shed a very bright light on that, but it wasn't a, co- these things have been going on for 40 plus years that we have this divergence. And you have to ask why. I'm sure there's something about the demographics, but for me, I think what's most Obvious again, with foreign eyes, you walk around America and you see more than almost any other place I can imagine in the world. The society seems designed physically, institutionally, culturally, to isolate us, to thin out our these local institutions. And I think if you talk about a hundred thousand plus Americans dying from drug overdoses every year, which is an incredible number. That receives almost no attention except once or twice a year. That's twice as many as died in the Vietnam War over two decades. That there's a, there's a supply issue, but there's also very much an issue of the breakdown of social structures, the breakdown of community, the breakdown of a social support system, not a government, a so society support system that that a government cannot replace. And I think that. It's hugely important to understand what is going on in our country on many levels.
1: So, let's uh, generalize on the themes that we've uh, been discussing so far. So, awareness of the uneasy circumstances confronting functional or even orderly neighborhood life is one that has assumed uh, an array of manifestations, ideological and political, as well as philosophical. So, in the country that I'm most familiar with, Australia, uh, several uh, social democratic left to center politicians, such as former government ministers Wayne Swan, Craig Emerson, and the present day politician, uh, formerly an economist, uh, Andrew Lee, um, have expressed their alarm over socioeconomic inequalities at the neighborhood or postcode or zip code uh, level. Social democrats in other Western countries have espoused similar issues, including in the US. So, from my reading of these contributions, uh, Social Democrat responses to the kinds of fragile neighborhoods you identify include uh, such measures as greater central governmental level involvement in education, income redistribution, and a sort of state centered attention to issues of loneliness and well being. That's something that's come up more recently, all of which combine into a rubric of what's called placemaking policy. Now here, uh, government is seen to be the dominant force in rendering neighbourly change under this framework. So from your perspective, is that problematic? And if so, why or why not? What? So I'm really asking here, what role ought government play uh, in redressing some of these uh, really complicated issues that you're identifying in your book?
2: So... First, I don't know Australian politics uh, well enough, except that it often looks like an Australian uh, rules football competition. But beyond that, I would say that I I can compliment the politicians for appreciating the importance of neighborhood. I would have a somewhat different perspective on some of these issues than maybe those that you have mentioned. I think the role of government is, is best when it creates enabling Conditions for people to thrive, so I think there is a role for government. I mean, just the way we design the physical landscape is a government choice. If we design suburbs with no centers and no no identities, and the way we the way we've planned, I, I find in America one of the odd things about America is that we build beautiful roads, we don't build beautiful places anymore. I mean, some of the old cities are beautiful, but Um, I haven't found a recently built beautiful neighborhood in the United States. I mean, compare this to some of the older cities, especially if you went to Italy or something like that, Barcelona. So I, I would say government can shape the physical landscape. Government can also shape institutions. I mean, I would say government shouldn't centralize. I think government should look to be more More locally based. One of the things I recommend is we get away from government working in silos, Department of Housing, Department of Human and Health Services, Department of Education. Yes, we need functional specialties and functional knowledge, but what would happen if those silos reported to neighborhood based teams? Those teams were held accountable for how well a neighborhood did, and they had more money. And they had more accountability to the people in a place. And they were judged on the criteria, not of units distributed, but about how thriving a neighborhood was. So I I think there's many ways we as a society could do things differently. And some of that is government doing things differently. But I, I would say I do agree with the premise that we are not creating a fair society when kids grow up in what we might call a distressed neighborhood, in which the streets are not safe, in which the, it's really hard for government to shape this. You grew up in a neighborhood where there's no stable families, the streets are not safe, the schools are not really very good, and there's not an abundance of institutions. Again, we're, there's a limit to what government can do, but it is a quite of an unfair society if kids grew up in that environment versus kids grew up with the opposite. I mean, you're, you're going to end up with tremendously different access to opportunity simply because of where people live. And so that problem ought to be a priority of society, a priority of, 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 of leaders, civic and political. But I do believe we have to always be very humble in what government can do. And we should be aiming to create these enabling conditions, and we could talk about very specific things that this would mean, but we're not the more we create enabling conditions, too many kids grow up in conditions that are not enabling them. And that to me is a is a real, real problem for our societies.
1: Part of your response here is uh, quite intriguing in the sense that the specific uh, reform to governmental or organization almost sounded to me like a, a british
2: blairite uh new labor uh style of i mean it's jane jacobs it's right out of jane jacobs i didn't know i didn't know she said that until i wrote the book but it's right a lot of these a lot of these ideas jane jacobs would recognize right away
1: no pre- and and precisely so there there are interesting uh sort of philosophical and even ideological adjacencies so uh, what what's really quite intriguing in in your sort of previous response is that Uh, we we might call for a reorganisation of government to be much more attuned uh, to the fortunes of neighbourhood, but there seems to be sort of in contrast and in conflict uh, an inertia, an unwillingness to actually fundamentally restructure or even do away with the silos. So it always seems to me, at least in my reading of uh, what we might call placemaking social democracy, uh, a, a sort of a tension where there's a reluctance to ultimately sort of lose that sort of grip of centralizing control. I, I sort of read a lot of uh, sort of a normative support for decentralized government in, in your previous response. Would that be accurate?
2: Yeah. So, so again, I, what, what's interesting about the reaction to my book and my work and my research is that I have very sympathetic people on the left and the right not everyone, of course. I have um, this idea that place matters, and that there's great inequalities in terms of. I, I mean, I I find a lot of interest of that on the left, as you can imagine. The right also has a, certainly a, a, a significant group of people that thinks neighborhood matters and thinks that society is very important. And so, I mean, there's there's different narratives and different language. But there is uh, there is certainly an opportunity here for something that's bipartisan or postpartisan that will elevate these issues. Um, in terms of your specific question, I mean, I mean, I believe our goal here is to create a society. I mean, I mean, again, there's a there's a conundrum. We need society to play an important role in creating and enabling conditions and catalyzing a strong society, and yet. Government itself often is unable to do that because government by nature wants more power, more authority, more resources. And it, so there's a bit of, there's a, there's not a bit, there's a lot of tension and yet this conundrum or this contradiction somehow must be solved. And it's hard to do. And in terms of changing government, I would say not only is there inertia, but there's so many incentives I mean, think of path dependence. Think of uh, what a monster Olson might talk about in terms of the build up of interest groups that depend upon the current system. I think it would take a very it would take a very, very determined leader. I mean, I've had conversations, and i I'll, I'll just give a couple of examples. I know Atlanta is exploring creating a layer of something outside the government understanding that they can't change the silos. So there, could they create an entity next to government that would stitch together the silos and be accountable to neighborhoods? I don't know the details, but it's an intriguing idea. I know people in Tennessee have talked about how they could completely reform all these services, but the main problem is even if the state wants to reform them, just as in the city example, so much of it is, is, is defined by the way the federal government Allocates money and legislation really hard to make change there, so th- there there's not only the incentives and the inertia there i mean there's it's almost like you're trapped in a system that is really hard to change the system because it's been decades of decades of build up and it's sort of all locked in place and i and I find that frustrating. This is a really hard puzzle uh that's truly really beyond any individual to change.
1: So th- this is this is really fascinating because I wonder whether uh, your book might be sort of uh, re- re-entitled the, the Rise and
2: Decline of Neighbourhoods in a sort of Mansour-Olsonian uh, sort of spirit. I want to be optimistic. Let's be optimistic here. Rise and fall and rise again. Thank you. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm very strongly in support of that.
1: But to uh, sort of think about... Uh, sort of how at the sort of the the local level, we have the sort of the rise of uh, sort of veto players, uh, so-called sort of NIMBY sort of actors, which lead to a sort of transitional gains trap, if you will, that actually sort of prevent uh, a revival of of, uh, vibrant uh, neighborly uh, communities. But uh, as you rightly say, in an optimistic spirit, uh, let's think about uh, the feasible pathways for change. And so in this sense, Um, An alternative to what could be called uh, placemaking social democracy or even, if you will, placemaking socialism, as I've described before, is a set of intuitions and concrete proposals, many of which I believe that you've already outlined for us already, that could be put together and be labelled, let's say, placemaking liberalism. So such an approach would emphasise a a non-state approach to resolving the problems of a neighbourhood entailing voluntaristic collective actions by motivated people. It would similarly be attentive to a range of existing fiscal, legal and regulatory barriers, for example, zoning uh, to effective local coordination and self-governance on the part of the neighbourhood members. So Tocqueville would be regarded as something of an intellectual standard bearer in this tradition of placemaking liberalism, as might the likes of Wilhelm Rucke, Alexander Rusto, Richard Cornell, and other classical liberals desiring a vibrant civil society. So does your book identify any specific merits or risks associated with a placemaking liberalism orientation to neighborhood revival, one that really gives primacy to non-state actors? What, what are the promises? What are the pitfalls there do you see?
2: Okay, first of all, I would call it neighborhood making and not placemaking. Placemaking actually is a field founded in the 70s, outgrowth of some of Jane Jacobs' work. There's several nonprofits, Project for Public Spaces and whatnot that have worked for decades, A very active in Australia. Australia has got some really big organizations in this space. And I would say what they, they're a reaction to this awareness that something in the way we have designed our physical spaces, same with new urbanism, has basically diminished or weakened our relationships. But placemaking tends to focus on public spaces. So uh, main streets, uh, open spaces, it doesn't I'm thinking neighborhood making with some of the most important relationships and institutions are not publicly visible. And so I'm thinking for, I'm thinking of a different level of depth, a much deeper set of relationships, not just that we have outdoor cafes and we have outdoor benches. And we've, so I, 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 I want to first differentiate between, I think placemaking is wonderful. I'm trying to go much further. So the answer to your question is yes. I mean, I, I, I believe our democracy, our health, our, Access to opportunity, I think so many things that we desire for our society to produce depends on a strong society, a healthy society. And in my book, I tried very hard to not lament and diagnose only, which is what many, many, I have a bookcase. Literally, I took all the books, I had to buy a bookcase, put it in my living room. My wife wasn't very happy. And they're all talking about what's wrong with our society diagnosing, documenting. Very hard to find many suggestions. For Bob Putnam, I mean, I love his work, but mostly not very practical. The best solution is family dinners, which are very important, but uh, it's not enough of a strategy. And so when I thought about what I should focus on for solutions, I, by design, did not focus on government. There's a government, we tend to think, especially in the intellectual class, or the policy world or the Washington think tank world it's almost if the whole discourse whatever whether especially even on the right the right talks about society the left tends to talk about government but then the right talks about government talks about society and ends up landing on what can government do differently and i said this is not where i wanted to start or finish and i therefore zero in on what i think are the key institutions that we need to have in society I use the lens that we need a type of social innovation, social entrepreneurship, social starters. I, we need a place by place. I talk about working horizontally, working sideways, and again, enabling conditions, but enabling conditions with a focus on what matters. Just being a social entrepreneur, helping people because they're homeless, well, that's wonderful. But I'm, I'm much more interested in social entrepreneurs and social initiatives that focus on relationships and institutions that strengthen them, especially at scale in a neighborhood. Because if you want to change all the things we're talking about, the best way to change it is neighborhood by neighborhood with institutions, with a certain amount of scale, with the focus on relationships, with other things coming downstream from that, the, your concerns about housing and everything else, you got to have good relationships for me. for The housing is only for a, a larger goal. And so I looked for these. I focused on these. I believe we need to spend a much more time in our civic space and among our philanthropists looking for these types of organizations that are neighborhood-based and put relationships at the heart of their work. So, yes, I very much... Take that as my focus. The big question, I think, for us is what is the what is the right? We need a wave of these. How do we catalyze a wave of these and help them scale up horizontally? Excellent. So,
1: if I were to set out uh, to describe a Kaplanian framework, if I if I will uh, for the for the reconstitution of dynamically functioning American neighborhoods, right, with the emphasis of neighborhoods that you astutely uh, put earlier. I would suspect that they would rest upon three focal points here: uh, resources, institutions, and virtues. So in in your book, uh, you refer to a crucial role played by so-called community quarterbacks, uh, which which may well be uh, social entrepreneurs situated at a neighbor, neighborly level. And uh, that is to say, individuals and groups of people who emerge to organize uh, improving economic, social, and other opportunities locally. So as you know, Uh, coordination tasks are said to be riddled with, let's say, the free riding problem of collective action. How to ensure that these quarterback personalities are not left to excessively shoulder the burdens of revivalist tasking in neighbourhoods. So can you think of how your three focal points here, resources, institutions and virtues, could be used either in isolation or in combination to help ensure success and that the co- these
2: community quarterbacks get the support that they need to help drive change. So I'm waiting M- Michaela for your article about the cap plan. And if I don't know, uh, the cap the my, my framework and you've actually given three pillars to my framework. So I'm looking forward to your article about, um, my, my new framework to save America. So thank you for that. So I, I would say, um, uh, first of all, it's a, it's a very nice way to think about the problem. And, uh, what you have, you have, and you put your finger on it, you have the collective action failure. Um, we think of that in many ways, but for me, this idea that we need, we as human beings and we as neighborhoods will be better off if we have I mean, nothing that constrains people from leaving, but some sort of willful interdependence with abundance of institutions and uh, like in my neighborhood, there's this social support web that I feel on a day-to-day basis. And I could easily give you many examples. I'll just throw one example, a bit of a tangent. Several years ago, my daughter would come in out of the car. So I'm in my house now. So there's the driveway. We've lived there 11 years, at least in this neighborhood. She comes out, her younger brother, it was about a year and a half, And she, she, she's about whatever, seven, eight, and she drops him and his chin falls on the cement and it's bleeding. And you're like, oh, this is panic. You can just feel, feel my panic. My wife, my wife picked him up and my wife is really good at emergencies, managing emergencies, used to be some part of her job, something like that. And she picked him up and took off down the street. And I'm like, where did she go? Didn't even tell us where she went. She just picked them up and ran, came back at him about 40 minutes later. Where did she go? She went to the nearest nurse. She knew, and I, I know, if you think about it, because I know hundreds of people in my neighborhood. They may not be my friends. Some of them are, but I have a hundreds of relationships. And I know for the, for, to a certain extent what they do. What their family is, what what to, how many kids they have, where do they go to school? Uh, my wife will tell you what's wrong with their kitchen renovation, and so on and so forth. But we have we have this like this this web behind us, and we have at least ten nurses, doctors, or something like that in our neighborhood that I could think of at least a half a dozen times in these eleven years. We just walked over to someone's house not might've been, I mean, if the daytime we would call somebody, but it's the evening, it's the weekend, boom, we have an answer. First person's not home, maybe the second person will be, it's not even, we're not even calling them often, we're just knocking on the door. And that's, and that I, and I feel that in a hundred little ways, day in and day out. And so if I go back to your, if if I think of this as an ideal situation, and I think about the quarterback or other things, what you have is in many, many or even most places in America, and increasingly so, in, especially in the wealthier parts of the world, is that you have you don't have that like you used to have. You don't have anything that enables that. And what you have to do is somehow change the dynamic. A quarterback is for a larger purpose. This neighborhood lacks the ability to bring leaders together. To make some sort of vision, some sort of change plan, work with lots of organizations, access resources, and design some way. But even if you put that aside you think at the, at the very personal level, how are you going to overcome the collective action failure that we would all be better off if we had some sort of web or network of social support that lacks And we as an individual find a very, even if I tried really hard, maybe I could make some change, a block party, a local association. There are things that I could do, but we literally have to think hard in a way that in the past, these things happened organically. They happened organically. Now they're not happening at all. There has to be more intentionality. So a quarterback is, it doesn't always have to be for a poor neighborhood. I think Again, I talk about social poverty versus economic poverty. And you could be a wealthy neighborhood where no one talks to each other. And that's a form of social poverty. But a quarterback is especially useful if you need, in the examples I give, a few hundred million dollars. You need to bring in new housing, mixed income housing, because the neighborhood is only basically dilapidated poor housing. You need to work with to reform schools, reform housing, reform transportation, create many more community amenities. You know, if if there's certain distressed neighborhoods with special needs, but I think the same idea of a collective action failure affects many materially well-off neighborhoods in which everything is isolating. And you need mechanisms to change, to create a collective action change in terms of expectations, norms. In some cases, it might actually be some sort of organizations who intentionally nurture, and I know several. I know one in Shreveport, I know one in Edmonton, I know Seattle tried a few things. There are attempts to intentionally nourish the social environment because we, if we're not intentional today, or there are not institutions that are doing it. It happens in some places. There are institutions that just do it naturally, culturally, religiously, physically. There's many drivers of this. Uh, if we're not doing it intentionally in many places, it just doesn't happen.
1: So I think one of the the more impressive uh, sort of characteristics of your book is the the seemingly seamless uh, integration of uh, theoretical and uh, sort of practical notions that we've. Uh, throughout your book. So I'd like to now turn to sort of, think of thinking a little bit more about some of the practical uh, dimensions of your book and why they're actually useful, including in a theoretical sense. So the, the, the mainline political economy tradition uh, that we here at the Makeda Centre emphasise, and we do in this podcast as well, which effectively represents a blending of Austrian, Bloomington and Virginia schools of political economy stresses the intellectual significance of peering through differing windows of appraisal and orientation to better understand the world in which we live, our neighbourhoods, right? So a unique attribute of your book, as I've already alluded to, is its focus upon the needs for, need for neighbourhoods to appear uh, through practical rather than strictly theoretical uh, ivory-towered sort of windows when assessing neighbourhood quality and the prospects of revival. I'm actually interested in sort of getting your insights as to why uh, practice is important, including for theoreticians, and whether you can enlighten our listeners as to how viewing uh, through the practical window of real-world case studies helps illustrate both neighbourhood problems and solutions that theory alone can't get to. What are your thoughts about that?
2: And that's a great question, and I, and I have a, a very strong opinion that comes out of my work in fragile states that predates uh, this research. And I think I have long seen, I, I would say, academia and scholarly work is so important, but I have long been frustrated by the focus on the abstract, the focus on the theoretical the focus on, in many cases, much more than a few decades ago, the numbers, we can get great information sometimes. I mean, some of my best data for my book, for my research, comes from Raj Chetty, who's crunching enormous amounts of data in a very unique way. So numbers are, if you have really good numbers... But what happens if some of the most important dynamics like social cohesion or collective efficacy, we don't have numbers? What happens if the primary marker of like social cleavages in countries changes? I mean, in one, I, I worked on Somalia. Somalia was 99%. They spoke Somali. They were Muslim. They were Somali ethnicity. You would think that would be a very cohesive country. Totally not because it's the clan that becomes and and yet there's very good ac- academic studies that look at basically try to look at ethnic fragmentation as a predictor when somalia you you won't have you you're basically not getting you're not getting any useful data by looking at ethnic or religious fragmentation you have to change change the cleavage the the, the cleavage the, the relationship problem in this country and so i've i have long believed and I did it in my first book with seven case studies. That one of the best ways to understand what is going on is by comparative case study research. That's why in this book I looked for five entry points of change. I looked at the data to see what what were the the most important or many of the most important. Again, you can't you have limits to the number, especially because you're doing in depth. And so I, I think one you get you tend to draw different lessons from comparative case study research than you do through more abstract theoretical numerical research. Um, I find that if you're looking for somewhat granular practical takeaways not it's not easy through the numbers you tend to you can get some big picture information and but so the type of lessons you can draw the the whole Framing of problems can differ, and uh, I just find it. I find the traditional approach. I find it. I, I find it to be honest very frustrating because we live in a real world, and some of the abstract ideas are wonderful. I mean, how much about these do I read? I read and I read, and yet when I get to the point where I actually want to do something and change something or or have a difference, the abstract becomes almost like a constraining factor because it's not really pointing the way and showing me the practical way I can do things. And so I, I firmly believe that. And I'll say one more thing, to do a comparative case analysis, it's really important that you are very careful in terms of the selection, because you could do this and select the ro- you could cases that are too similar, cases that are not representative. I once did a study on social contract formation and I chose eight countries. And by design, they were four sets of two countries from four different parts of the world. Because not only were we gonna do comparative and get a good number of cases, but we I, it's very true in academia that even when you do regional studies or, or studies like in the globe, mostly people end up, they do Africa and Africa, Latin America and Latin America, Middle East and Middle East, And it's very rare you find cross-regional. So too much is region-specific. And I wanted to have cross-regional comparisons by design. I thought that would be very helpful. So I I would just say I think this approach is a better – I mean, they're both useful. They serve different purposes. But too infrequently today, um, scholars – are taking this comparative qualitative case study approach, which I find the only way really to get very practical, useful things that I can use on the ground. Okay,
1: so keeping with this theme of keeping our feet on the ground in the practical real world, one could uh, argue that societies as we find them are subject to ceaseless, even what we might call colliding changes. And so Uh, Probably problem identification and solution prescriptions for neighbourhoods will be prone to change over time. Uh, The the problems and the solutions that we see in 2024 are not the same in 1964, another date that we uh, have spoken about earlier. So one great source of change in the contemporary world, which is uh, the subject of much public discussion uh, is that borne by migration and our increasingly multicultural co presence at local, regional, and national levels? So, um, I'm wondering, drawing upon the insights from your book and some case studies, even how have migrants uh, shaped the condition of neighborhoods? And how might the emergence of associations suitable to the needs and desires of migrant communities provide us with some really important key lessons on this question of neighborhood recovery. Do migrants provide a sort of sense of dynamism with respect to association and collaboration, which might help us provide an answer uh,
2: for some of the problems that you're dealing with in your book? So first, I I will say that time changes, the challenges might change some of the solutions. But if I think about the building blocks of a strong society, the building blocks of a strong community, many of those building blocks are going to be the same. I mean family, interfamily, something about local institutions those are going to matter, something about the fact that there's a beginning and an end and that we recognize that this place, whatever that place might be, matters. So some of that I don't think changes. I think it's much more challenging today than it was two generations ago and then as i've mentioned we have to be more intentional and also we have to i mean we have to do we have to have different strategies in many ways in terms of your question i mean not always but mostly migrants are a positive i mean you have you have you have two issues here one is that local people don't always appreciate migrants whether they're people from the city going to the town People from outside of that country coming in. Generally, what I find is there's an absorptive capacity that a place can do well with a certain amount of newcomers. Let's, as an example, the United States has much greater absorptive capacity of immigrants than, say, many countries in Europe, or for that matter, Asia or other parts of the world where they have very little history with immigration. We don't have infinite roughly when we get to 13 14 15% something about that number we seem to get a backlash and so i think even locally you you could see people welcoming migrants but at some level so there's that there's that first that issue of absorptive capacity and different places are going to be more welcoming in general recent immigrants to the united states typically have strong networks strong cohesion They bring a certain amount of informal institutions with them, and they can certainly help places that are not doing well uh, by starting new businesses, by building new institutions, by bringing a certain dynamic that is lost in some parts of America that they might have had previously. And we can see many, many examples of that. But I do think this issue of always... Some people think migra- migrants are always good. I think migrants are very valuable to our any place and any society. But you have to make social cohesion is something that doesn't happen by accident. It requires, uh, on a certain level, a, an intentional, conscious effort to ensure social cohesion. So even if you had the migrants coming in and that was a good positive, some initiatives are likely necessary to create bridging mechanisms to ensure that the outcome is, is positive for everybody involved. So I, I do think it's a multi-dimensional challenge and I hopefully your experience in Virginia has seen that everyone is um, welcoming you as a newcomer there. Indeed, and so bringing together
1: now The key themes from our discussion, Seth, and based on the research canvassed in your book, Fragile Neighbourhoods, I'd like to ask the following set of interrelating questions. Uh, and, And these are sort of big questions, admittedly. So, what qualities and features make, in your view, for a robust or effectively functioning neighbourhood? One might even draw inspiration from human understandings of virtues and posit that such a thing as a good Neighborhood can exist. If so, if we take that argument to have an element of truth, how might might we identify a good neighborhood worthy of people living in?
2: What say you? Got it. So uh, I think you can think of neighborhoods on a continuum, a spectrum. Let's say the the, the least healthy or the least positive are fragile. I mean. I I like the term dynamic, robust. Some people use the word anti-fragile, resilient. There's various terms. uh, But for me, a strong neighborhood is, a. a, let's think of, we had COVID. So in my neighborhood, a lot of people had a very negative experience uh, during COVID, isolating, alone, uh, whatnot. My neighborhood, the immediate reaction was everybody started putting chairs in front of their houses. Some people even put uh, couches, and as the weather got got warmer, as it got colder later in the year, heaters and everything in a carport, which is, you have something over your head. I mean, all of a sudden, volunteer activity started. People were delivering food for each other. And so in times of stress, a strong neighborhood shows its worth, and a fragile neighborhood shows its problem. So when, when you're looking for a neighborhood and when I found my neighborhood, I looked at lots of neighborhoods. Between here and New York, I went to five, six different places before I chose this place. I'm looking for a place that I feel a sense of warmth. I feel a sense of welcome. I feel a sense that um, people on a certain level, again, I'm not looking for friends, but that they care enough about each other, that they're going to show up if you have a need. I'm looking for a place in which there's an abundance of local things going on so it's not just placeless local things going on could be local i mean i don't interact a lot except with the restaurants with local business supermarket with local businesses but there's an abundance of people doing things for each other and i would say just a lot of a lot of institutions a lot of opportunities to meet people a, a certain mindset a norm of how people treat each other And of course, the physical matters. I mean, I'm not in a a very, I mean, we're in the suburbs. Some places have sidewalks, some places don't. I think it's a bit overrated because I think the culture or the norms of a place can overrule the physical to some extent. But I would certainly prefer, for the sake of relationships, living in a place that's relatively compact. We all have houses, but we're all mostly within 20, 25, 30 minutes at the distant parts, walking distance. And so we have a lot of places to meet, and we have this culture or these norms, and we're all within reaching reach. We're all reachable from each other. So I I intentionally look for maybe not that whole formula, but some of that formula was clearly in my mind when I was comparing neighborhoods. And I would welcome people to think very hard about how important their neighborhood is to their well being, what they can do to improve their neighborhood as well as if they ever move, what kind of place will they have the best relationships in? And thus, we have the good guide to
1: neighborhoods. So Seth Kaplan, author of Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time. I sincerely thank you very much for your
2: time. Thank you so much, Michaela.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast.